0: Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Your hosts are Andrew Douglas, Managing Principal, FCW Lawyers, and Karen Liu, Principal Consultant, Found Consulting.
1: G'day Karen, how are you?
0: I'm good. Yep. From um, one uh, night
1: owl to another. How are you going? Good. Late <laughs> last night, didn't we? It's, it's yeah,
0: nice. I got the brief about the uh, the kind of greenish hoodies. So yeah, no, we that's don't...
1: good. And this is my third for the day, so I'm actually feeling pretty filled as Do well. You know what?
0: I've actually I've, I've moved. Thirty nine years old. Right, first time. on this week. I've started drinking black coffee because I'm thinking. Um, yeah, all these white coffees is probably not good for. I don't know. You know, my yeah, waist. No, I'm sure the right white part, part of it's bad, <laughs> Yeah, I've
1: actually just started infusing it into my arm rather than drinking because it takes up time for talking.
0: But pretty
1: exciting today. This is our last day in Carlton. So as a business, we have grown and sprawled. We can no longer fit in our office and we're back into the city, which is really exciting. So this is our last time from Carlton and Karen from a home in North Melbourne. We move in today and you'll hear occasional bumps and rumps as people are moving stuff. It's very, very exciting. And it can is. I just say on the 10th of December, we're doing a live, live from our new offices breakfast show and we just love to have you along. we we'll, will we'll get out some invitations soon. I think there will be limited seats but and we don't know how we're going to do it live either, but we're going to give it a shot. So it's going to be with the studio audience. How about that? Well, that'd be fun. No, okay. we do. Some really interesting things have happened this week. We're going to deal with a couple of themes, some really quite awkward themes that we think we need to talk about. WorkSafe have laid 59 charges against the Victorian Health Department over the hotel quarantine. People will be making a lot of noise about that, but isn't it wonderful in Australia we have independent institutions within government who can be critical and strong about what is safe and what is not safe. Had the inquiry not been held by the Victorian government, it would have been difficult to lay those charges. So I think for all governments who make mistakes, own up to them, have your inquiries exposed, get the learning, because from that we're going to learn a huge amount of stuff and it's just great that WorkSafe are charging. But it is probably the end of the road on the COVID prosecution process for regulators and we're already starting to see regulators go back out, particularly around things like mental health and the traditional risks, the things that we all know about like forklifts, machinery guarding and the like. So we're going to see a massive change in the way the regulator starts to behave over the next six months. So be ready for it, I think, is the short answer. All right, let's jump into the first case because there's a case that I've talked to you about before, which is Kimber and Sapphire Coast Community Aged Care. And that was a case about an aged carer who refused flu vaccination. She suggested there was a number of reasons why she couldn't have it. She suggested a medical condition which she failed to produce any relevant evidence of and was unable to produce any evidence at all of the trial of the matter that she shouldn't have the flu injection. At first instance, she lost the case and her termination was upheld. On appeal to the full court, full bench, the Fair Work Commission, once again, she lost the majority decision by Adam Hatcher. Great decision, great clarity, which focused on safety and risk And let's talk about this. This is not a a vaxxer versus anti-vaxxer. This is a safety debate, okay? It comes down to doing a risk assessment. If someone is unsafe because of it or provides risk of lack of safety to others, then it is reasonable. They aren't able to undertake the inherent requirements of the job safely. Therefore, they can be terminated. But there was probably the worst decision I've ever read by DP Dean. It's a shameful decision that has based not on more at all and is based purely on her own Ideology. It says safety law has no application. There weren't lawful and reasonable directions. It is just an absolute nonsense. It says, actually, that testing is the best method of providing a safe working environment. It's just crap. But unfortunately, that's been grabbed by an interested lobby to suggest that vaccinations, both in COVID and flus, are not lawful. And I, can I just say to you, the this will go to the federal court and it will slam that decision. The decision lacks any legal basis and is appalling. So... We've got an article on site that Nina and I have written. Really encourage you to read it because this is a safety debate, not an ideology debate. These are risk assessments. Everyone who listens to this is skilled in risk assessment. Please go back to the law. Keep away from the rhetoric. Keep away from social media and keep away from the various people who are trying to draw benefit from both pro and anti-vaccination.
0: Andrew, and I'm working with a number of clients on this risk assessment piece, Andrew, and I'll tell you what, the clarity that we get... Where we just focus on the safety element, just the safety aspect alone, there is little argument. There is actually no argument because there's only really, there's only sensible ways to deal with something and have any sensible controls. The rest of it, politics, ideologies, whatever else, not part of the picture.
1: Yeah. So You all know my views on it, but I, I want to be really strong about this, and that is this is a legal issue and it's driven through safety law. I think it's a moral issue, but I'm not going to lecture you about that today. This is a safety issue, and as Karen says, and the organisations who are doing it, we're going to come up with multiple ways of managing it, including for the people with exemptions, with with lawful exemptions. And it's quite delicate if they have an adverse reaction to a vaccine Judy, Yes, if they can show that they were directed to do it, there is an argument that they could bring a work cover claim. So good question. All right. Now today the issue which I want to talk about because it's one that really bothers me, and it's one where we're not getting great clarity from courts or academics. We keep hearing about, yes, so for Pablo, those that are mandated by government direction. So the answer is that's a lawful and reasonable direction, Pablo. But notwithstanding that, if someone suffers a reaction, which is a result of being mandated to do it, there is a risk of a work cover claim. It's not been agitated at the moment for Judy and Pablo, but there is an argument because work was a substantial contributor to it. Okay, But we'll we'll talk about that when the case comes because it may come. So the issue I want to talk today about is health of employees and particularly the agenda that is being driven, this very singular agenda about weight. So the case law, we're going to talk about obesity cases, okay, and this is from a person who's obese. So look, I'm here, I'm listening to it. But the issue Kara and I want to talk about is this confusion that we've had over the last couple of years where a lobby of people have zeroed in on obesity as being an issue without quite understanding it's a health issue. And it's just one part of it. And also this celebritized culture through social media and other processes which measure and judge people for the slightest bit of weight, for the slightest imperfection. And what we're seeing is the way people are being recruited, the way people are behaving is becoming increasingly judgmental and limited to perfect people. And, of course, even people as handsome and attractive as me are not perfect, you know, like it's just not true. So... Today I want to talk to you about the obesity cases, and I don't want anyone to be offended because it's coming from me. But what I want to get out of these cases is what is the employee responsibility around health management? What is the employee responsible around their own health management and what is the reality? You know, I'll come and give you the data around obesity later because it is startling and it shows that we do have a bit of a health crisis looming in Australia and weight gain is part of that crisis, okay? But for the moment, let's start with the cases and... For those who are interested in workers' compensation, uh, the Department of Premier and Cabinet Schmidt is the leading leading case recently. Um, it was 30 October 2019 on what happens when people come to a weight where weight prevents people, sorry, where weight creates risk for injuries that have been suffered. And Schmidt was a woman who'd suffered knee injuries, one from tripping, one from twisting. She carried a significant amount of weight. It was pathological weight. It was weight that was not going to be moved and weight was seen as a major precursor to the injury and the severity of the injury and the the return to work from the injury. She had gastric band surgery, which didn't prevent further surgeries to a knee but certainly alleviated some of the pressures on it, and she claimed the gastric band surgery as a compensable surgery, which was fought but was accepted by the court that it was a natural consequence. So can you see already as we're starting here, there is a cost associated with weight, okay? And it's seen in a number of different areas, okay? But one of them is that significant weight over over a lengthy period of time creates greater pressure on organs, joints, muscles, and in workers' compensation terms, it is a source of aggravation and damage, and therefore, not only is the injury going to be compensable, but methods of managing the pressures on those injuries will also be compensable. So interesting case, not a surprising case. The one that's happened in South Australia a few days ago, which is Giselle and um, the Department of Health and Wellbeing, is the first time in South Australia where this case has been agitated with real clarity. She was a nurse. She um, had been, had carried weight for a long period of time. She had knee problems. She was, without support, unable to do her job. A doctor reviewed that and said she's not fit for a job. There were policies aligned with discrimination law which said, you know, Remember, we're talking about the disability here is the protected attribute, not weight. And that's one thing I want you to know. In, in Victoria, appearance, tattoos, haircuts, weight, all those things are a protected attribute, okay? No other state or territory and not a Commonwealth legislation, okay? Only in Victoria. But in every other state and territory, the injuries that arise because of that or which are impacted by that are protected attributes. So she had knee injuries, that was a protected attribute. The hospital refused to allow her to use aids to do her job and made no attempt to make the adjustments that were necessary and the court held that they acted unlawfully because they failed to make reasonable adjustments. Remember in discrimination law where you you have a protected attribute around a physical injury or illness, the employer must consider what are reasonable adjustments for that person to undertake that work, not other work, that work, and that didn't happen in this case. So it breached discrimination law. But it also breached their own policies and procedures. And what we're seeing increasingly in, this, in these cases is courts going back to say, but you say you're going to do this and you don't do it. Now, you remember a long time ago in Baker and the Commonwealth, where we looked at the obligations of employers to comply with their own policies and procedures as an implied term was chucked out as an idea. But it's coming back and every different tribunal in court is starting to say, look, if you say you're going to do something, you've got to do it. Finley and MS Security is another case, an older case. I just want to show you really simple, which was about a security guard who had reached 200 kilograms, could only walk five minutes in an hour. He was offered alternative work, which didn't require um, being on his feet and working. He refused that. And they said, look, you can't do your job and you won't take alternatives. We're going to terminate. And they were successful. Okay. Very, very simple case. Okay. That's frustration. When because of no fault of anybody, and let's not talk about fault, and the courts don't when it comes to injury and illness, you're unable to do your job, then the contract is frustrated. It's not so much termination, it's just frustrated at all. Okay, so just a very simple concept. We call it termination for inherent requirements because the unfair dismissal regime doesn't recognise frustration as a concept, but that's the effect of what it is. All right, really interesting case, just reminding us about how we instruct doctors, which is if MBR and Parker, which is where a doctor said someone was unfit for work, but didn't actually see the patient, just looked at <laughs> just looked at the job description, looked at past assessments and said, can't do it. But the criticism in this case is not only, and the doctor ended up paying the costs, this, which is really great. Sorry, doctors out there. But what I like about this is two things. One, you must instruct the doctor correctly as to what is the question that is being asked, and it must deal with the safety legislation. Because in this case, said, look, There's no mention of safety legislation. There's no no obligation in there mentioned. It must address the discrimination issues. But equally, you must have good doctors who do see people and do care about them and think about what this person is. Because remember, when we go to terminate someone, we're destroying their life. It's a terrible thing. I I don't want people to lose sight of it. Let's not get the hard-nosed doctor that gives you the answer you want. Let's get somebody who is really open to trying to help someone, particularly around this issue, because it's capable of being managed. So, look, they're the cases, and I guess the things we want to look at in this, just remember that we've condoned someone working away for a long period of time. People don't suddenly put on 30 kilograms away, and we've made a number of adjustments. Other people have helped. Now, in Cosmo and Qantas, what that means is it's their job. The fact that we've made these adjustments over five or ten years, at Common Law, that's now their job, not the job you've got on their job description, the one that's supported. So be careful in what you ask for and remember, what we're after, Karen, is identifying what it looks like to be healthy at work. And that's a much broader and more sophisticated intervention than saying to someone, you need to lose weight.
0: Yeah. And I know that what you're talking about there, Andrew, is on an individual basis, but we've got to remember that statistically, if half the workforce, uh, if you're looking at, you're talking about weight or overweight, this is not about that one individual. If you're going to be managing that person, how does that impact essentially how you're managing half of your workforce? This is something so much bigger than just weight. It's health. And I know that your research that you know, your team has done as well is going to be great if we can get to read really yeah, into try
1: I'll try and get Tom to publish the data around this. But I'll tell you that, you know, the, the statistics are alarming. It shows that by 2025, 87% of all men and 75% of women over the age of 25 will be overweight or obese. That's just a concerning number, isn't it? It shows that it costs us around about ten billion in absenteeism and presentism by the by the nature of the illness and injuries that arrive from it. We know it's the primary cause of non-fatal injury and illness. We know it's the secondary cause for fatal illness injuries. So it's a health issue. Mm. but we can't address it on an individual level because it's just ridiculous. We've got to look and say, well, look, what is health now, Yes, my waist circumference, I wouldn't dare tell you because it'd scare people and you'd hang up on me, but it says that I'm a higher risk of cancer and heart disease. Okay, it does. But I exercise two to two and a half hours every day. So my overall health is very good and I don't miss work and you'll know that I'm focused and I don't have pre issues because my underlying health is very strong. Do I have to lose weight? Yeah. Will it be after lockdown? Probably. But... I just want to focus we can't do this on individuals. If we do it on individuals, we destroy souls. Our obligation under safety law is to provide a safe place of work and to monitor people's health, and that means we need a benchmark of what healthy looks like and start making both below-the-line interventions to mm-hmm. help people, be, but also above-the-line interventions to say to people, this is actually going to benefit you and make their lives better.
0: It's going to make your business better too because it, it just busts this idea around, well, you know what, it's your health good. it's your problem, e. It is in terms of we all have our responsibilities, but think of it more broadly organisational.
1: This is something we, and subject to what you say, who listen to us, this is something we want to drill down on a bit more. I'm going to get Karen to talk about unconscious bias, but I want to bring you back to this issue that I think concerns Karen and I most because this is the area we live in, is this linear siloed approach to weight, which fails to recognise what are the causes towards that. It's usually part of a lifestyle, you know, what a segment of society it comes from. Mm. You know, there's so many elements that play out in this issue and yet I'll have somebody who's a forklift driver who can no longer get on the forklift and a client will ring me up and say, well, what can we do? And I know what the answer is, but the answer was something a long time ago. The answer was actually getting those benchmarks of what healthy looks like and getting in behind people, leaning into people to support them feeling good about being healthier, not waiting for someone to get to a stage which is pathological and final and go, okay, they've got to go. Okay, And if we look at the truck driving industry, that's where we're going. We're hurtling towards it in the truck driving without using too much of a pun. For Karen and I, the issues are constantly this linear approach towards it, this change in our culture towards people photoshopping themselves to look like what they're not being, feeling self-critical, being criticised for what they look like. This constant push towards what perfection is has led to a greater isolation of people. And that's why I thought I'd get Karen just to talk about unconscious bias in this, this realm, because I think this is part of the answer, isn't it, Karen? This is mm-hmm. part of the solution, is changing the way people perceive. So over to you.
0: Okay. So I think the thing with unconscious bias is that it's not something that you can prevent as such, because the whole idea of it is that it's unconscious. You don't even realize that, you know, you're making these judgments. Okay. So but what we can do is that we can interrupt unconscious bias. So I want to make it really clear that um, there is a lot of emphasis around appearance in terms of uh, how people look, but in terms of unconscious bias, the sources um, could be many other different things. So we could be looking at age, ethnicity, religion, family responsibilities. That's one that doesn't get talked about much, Andrew, in terms of parents and carers. The other piece um, that you can hear sometimes is around education, where someone went to school or didn't go to school. That stuff, we have all our preconceived ideas over our lifetime that we've formed a view on these things. So the thing is that a couple of call-outs for you all, because you've probably done something around this anyway, is firstly, do you know your workforce demographics around in terms of you know, gender, age, in terms of what's the makeup of your group, what are the profiles? And from that, can you identify any potential areas of bias in terms of you're not already doing some form of training? And it doesn't have to be formal training, but certainly encouraging more dialogue positive dialogue and to engage with people and having that diversity of insights in the conversation and again let's we we see i see there's a long link in terms of diversity it may be around people's sexuality or in terms of people's ethnic backgrounds it's not limited to just that okay we're seeing that just but it's not just about that With that, looking at revising your practices as well. And by that, it could mean practically looking at meeting time. So if I use the example of parents, you know what, you want to make in terms of nine o'clock meetings for the whole team, but realising half your workforce, nine o'clock, particularly during lockdowns is when uh, homeschooling starts or whatever. Those kind of considerations can make a big difference in terms of including people more. When it comes to recruitment, and I'll say recruitment, but also considering people for opportunities for, let's say, projects or assignments or promotions or things like that, consider like really challenge in terms of the diversity of your applicant pool, omit the, the bias sources um, where you can. So this is probably more so recruitment if you can uh, drop names and photos and stuff like that, that's great if you could do that. But I think most importantly is being clear about what criteria matters. So what is it that, if you're looking at skills, capability, experience, character attributes, what are those things? And making sure you assess consistently on those things and immediately after you make that assessment. So I might meet Andrew for an interview and I've already formed a view on him and I haven't actually, I forget or I mark him differently um, the next day because I haven't done that instantly because I've formed my own view and that's kind of muddled up my
1: Let's give an example that, Karen. I did a mediation in Sydney dressed in my usual way and I arrived in there to sit down and the woman was off me said, oh, when is your lawyer coming? (laughs) (laughs) I said, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah.
0: No.
1: So, look, I hope that's, uh, that's handy. But it was just a quick one for you guys there. So, And thanks, Anne, about Ages and Awareness Day today. It, it's sort of, we. I didn't realise that, so thanks for that. But I, I guess I really do want to push this idea. You know, when I started recruiting in law firms, I did look at schools, I did look at universities people had been to, and I've been in organisations where clearly how someone looks has been marked up as a... You know, when I looked at the graduates that came through one firm that I worked at, they were universally some of the most handsome and prettiest people I've ever seen in my life, and I can't help feeling they weren't a proper cross-section, and they seemed remarkably white to me as well. So let's really focus on this because the conversation that Karen and I have started having, and I want your feedback today, do you want us to keep going with this? Uh, You can tell from Karen and I it's an issue we feel quite strongly about, but it is a thing about the resilience and the capability of our workforce going forward and about who we are as an employer. You know, do we want to be a good employer who creates longevity talent retention and builds capability that's a transformative process it's not sitting on your ass process it is mm-hmm. actually saying health looks like this if you look at the we just finished our well-being survey again for this month from Karen some of those results hurt okay mm-hmm. some of them required us to immediately reach out to people they shocked us okay. What I want you to think about is if you don't know the evidence, you don't know the problem and you just wait for a problem to arise and you shoot it because that's the way you do it. You do it through exceptionalism rather than through leadership. So health is transformative. It's not mm. And I, I know I'll, I'll stop my rave about that and I'll stop being Carl for the moment and get back to being Andrew. Let's go on to our case, study, case study, which yeah. agitates this issue in a bit more detail.
0: Okay, so Dave was a plant operator at Canine Cairns. Oh, nice you notice I did this
1: because you're oh, ready so I just I know, I know,
0: I know. <laughs> just, like, anyway, just trying to make it hard for me, right? I never did that okay. for me, but for you I just make up shit every yeah, time. You just, you're so good, Andrew. Anyway, a company that made dog food cans. Okay. His oh. job involved him in climbing up ladders and constantly working around conveyor belts to check quality, cure faults and retool the machine for new runs. Dave was 43 years old, he weighed 178 kilos and was 179 centimetres tall. He has been an employee for k Iron for 17 years and was a fit young man when he started. He has developed significant asthma, profound arthritis in both knees and ankles, and his body was failing when he undertook his work, taking over 45 days off work in 2020. Over the past few years, Dave's assistant plant operator and machine hand has helped him avoid the difficult work. Dave was sent to see an occupational physician. The doctor said he was inherently unfit for his role. His knee instability created significant risks working at heights as it gives way without, without notice, and he would never be able to climb 10-metre ladders, which he needed to do throughout the day with risks of further injuries to his knees and ankles. Weight loss was critical for Dave to return to any work within the factory, but it could never be his current job. He had accrued five months of personal leave, three months of annual leave, and three months of long service leave. He was subsequently evaluated by an exercise physiologist and dietitian who said they could safely reduce his weight by 70 kilograms over a year. Dave told them he had no interest in their plan. Canine terminated David's employment for being unfit for the inherent requirements of his role, both because of the doctor's findings and due to David's rejection of the exercise diet plan as it meant they were unable to employ him elsewhere.
1: Now, before we go to the poll, I'm just going to let you know this week is really hard. I know I keep saying that, but the answers are hard, so just have a shot, and I'll talk you through why the answers aren't straightforward.
0: Let's go. Cool. People are very quick this morning. Look at that.
1: Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to have a look at what people have said there. Just one second. Has Dave's contract been frustrated? Can I just say this is the Cosmer and Qantas issue? Now, Cosmer and Qantas was a case about a baggage handler who developed knee and back problems, and they provided him with work, a variety of different work over a period of time. But they documented it always as a return to work program to try and rehabilitate him. And after two years, he was doing data processing. That's all they had for him. And they terminate his employment. He said, well, no, no, I'm now a data processor. So you have condone that. I'm now a data processor, and therefore you can't terminate him. And what the court held was two things. One... It was very clear in the documentation and process that Qantas always wanted returning to being a baggage handler. That was his job. And that was his obligation at law, the obligation of Qantas at law. Secondly, at no stage did they ever condone or change his employment except for the purposes of rehabilitation. And again, that was both orally and documented. And therefore, his job was a baggage handler. He wasn't able to do it and therefore it was a proper termination. The difficulty in this case is Dave's been doing his job with support for several years, and that is now his job under Cosmos common law, okay? In the absence of documentation, no, his job has not been frustrated because his job is the job with the support of two other people. That's pretty terrible, isn't it? Now, this is marginal. So the decision, the people who said, yes, we'd get away with this in most courts, arguing this, we'd get away with it. We wouldn't get away with it in the Supreme Court of Victoria And we wouldn't get away if it got to the federal court in front of someone like Justice Flick, who would go and say, no, 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 you've condoned him doing lesser work. That is now his job. You can't say he's unable to do it. And you forgot to ask the right question. That's what happened in Zeribus and Mondelez. Zeribus and Mondelez was a confectioner who got injured. He's clearly unfit to do the job. Okay, a 63-year-old man, body was smashed by working confectionery on old dinosaur-like machines. The judge said, "I don't even know what the inherent requirements of the job are. Production manager, HR, employee, and supervisor all say the jobs are different. So I can't say what reasonable adjustments are because I don't even know what the job is. So the problem here is long-standing, and that's what Karen and I wanted to say to you in the first place. The next question is: Policies requiring consideration of adjustment modification. Did they do enough to offer or make adjustments? And I didn't give you enough details, so you're all right. Okay." But my heart tells me, this is where I'd end up, that's part of an assessment process about what the adjustments are. But the bottom line is if we accept his job is what he started doing as a planned operator, there are no adjustments. And that's quite right. Okay. If we accept that his job is what he's currently been doing for the last three or four years, then there are reasonable adjustments that should have been considered. How do you see why this is such a difficult case? And you can see that. The doctor was never properly instructed in accordance with Xerubis, and we never managed the person correctly in accordance with the Qantas case. Do you see how difficult we've got? And we've all got that because we failed to manage health a long time ago. Now, the third question is, and let's just, sorry, I'll have a look at what the answer is here. Uh, what about their delay in doing anything? Does it mean they can terminate his employment because he's accepted in capacity over a prolonged period? And your answers are absolutely right. The fact we are all over the place is where you'd end up in a court. We have delayed doing something about this person's health, and now we're stuck. So we'd have to reset the whole process. We can talk about how we do that next week. But love to hear your feedback. Do you want to go further with this? I'd like to know, okay? I think this is something we really need to address, and Mm -hmm. I'll get Tom to publish the article about the facts behind this over the next week. So that's enough from me. Lovely to see you, Karen. We were sort of chatting on FaceTime at God knows what hour last night. And thanks very much, guys. And... Have a lovely week, and we'll see you from our new premises next week. Okay. All cheers. right.
0: Take care, Bye-bye. everyone. Bye now.